On this episode of Larry the Golf Guy, we welcome to the program best-selling author Alan Shipnuck. Alan is someone who is well-known to golf fans. He um, had a long and distinguished career at Sports Illustrated, uh, where he um, covered some 70-plus majors in his nearly 25 years there and spent a few years at Golf Magazine and um, is now at uh, the Fire Pit Collective. Uh, but in, in addition to being um, one of the leading uh, sports writers who focuses on golf, he's an author of some note. Um, and uh, after talking a little bit about his history, um, it's his latest two books that we focus on um, in this upcoming episode. Um, and that would be his biography of Phil Nicholson and his uh, book on live um, entitled Live and Let Die um, and uh, we go um, into some depth um, on Phil and, and in particular on live and um, where that stands and you know as we taped this a few days ago um, there'd been a fair amount of news over the last week uh, including um, you know, the SSG investment, uh, strategic sports groups investment of um, up to $3 billion and um, the uh, structure of the equity grants that the PGA Tour is going to be granting to its members. So we cover all of that. Um, one thing I will note um, uh, is that uh, my geography was a little weak here when I mentioned the Delaware meeting in um, 2022 that Tiger organized among the leading players. That's really where they focused on the notion that the top players need to play together more, which is what's led to these elevated events now called signature events. Um, that was um, during the BMW Championship, but it was when it was at Wilmington Country Club, not Caves Valley, where it was the year before. Um, so little correction on that. But um, a really uh, interesting conversation with Alan, who um, is as plugged in as anyone um, who does the golf beat, that's for sure, as I think you'll readily see. So upcoming on this episode of Larry the Golf Guy, best-selling author, Alan Shipna. Well, welcome to another edition of Larry the Golf Guy, and I am so honored today to have with us um, one of the uh, true leading uh, writers um, in the in the game of golf, um, both as a reporter for many years and as an author of a number of books, um, Alan Shipnuck. Alan, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, so um, just maybe to get folks started a little bit um, and give them a little sense of your background, I know you grew up in Salinas, California, you still live in Central California, but maybe you can talk about how you were first introduced to the game of golf. I know you um, aren't too far from Pebble and that played a bit of a role, but I'll let you explain kind of how you first got introduced to mm -hmm. golf. Yeah, I mean, no one in my family uh, were golfers. It, it was not, you know, I grew up playing football, basketball, baseball, and, and all that stuff. Um, but when I was... I guess 14, uh, my mom had a boyfriend who was a golfer and he kind of introduced me to the game. Um, and then my sister got a job at Quail Lodge working in the pro shop out in Carmel Valley. Right. And so when I turned 16, she kind of arranged for me to be a cart boy out there. 
and we could hit balls during lunchtime. And back then there was a guy named Ben Doyle who was yes. he was one of the real advocates and proponents of the golf machine. And right. Homer of, Kelly stuff, right? Back then. All that. Absolutely. And he, yeah. and ben Doyle was kind of Homer Kelly's disciple and he was this crazy genius. You know, he was he was Bobby Clampett's coach. Right. And he was a Carmel Valley native and you know, he's a little bit older than I am, but he, he'd already kind of passed through and had had his heyday, you know, winning U.S. Amateurs and all that. But the, he would still pop in once in a while. So there was some high level stuff that was way over my head, but um, I got to <laughs> see it and I and I, I was privy to some of the conversations and that sparked more of my interest. And then um, two years later, I start I, I switched over to Pebble Beach as a cart boy. And that was during the. 1991 was my first year. That was during the the period of the Japanese ownership. They were right, very, you know, laissez-faire. There wasn't a lot of oversight, and so those of us who worked at the course, we'd go out and play it twice a week. I mean, every I had wow. an opening. Yeah, and it was we'd play cross country golf, like from you know the the second tee to the third green, and oh wow, stuff like that. Because <laughs> um, why not? And so obviously that's a good place to fall in love with the game. So. Uh, that was that was really the start, and it was at Pebble Beach where where I met the managing editor of Sports Illustrated, which led to the internship. Yeah, so I want to ask you about life. that, so, yeah. right? But maybe talk about Mark Mulvey, who's you know, the legendary managing editor for so many years of Sports Illustrated, and um, yeah, let, let's talk about that because, of course, that led to you being at SI for, gosh, twenty plus years. Yeah, twenty five, and um, yeah, you know, this was. Back in those days, I don't know how they do it now, but we just get this big, thick, computerized printout of the next day's tea times, and I would always flip through it because you know one day it was Michael Jordan, the next it was Michael Douglas. You know, it's Pebble Beach in the summertime; right. everybody came through, and I saw Mulvoy's name, and because I had been a longtime SI reader, even when I was at that point eighteen years old, um, and I already knew I wanted to be a sports writer, and, and Sports Illustrated was my dream job. You know, I. Mobile had sure. this signed letter from the editor on the front, you know, in front of the magazine. So I knew his name. I was waiting for him when he arrived and chatted him up. And, you know, I was 18 years old. This guy runs the greatest magazine in the world. He didn't have a lot of use for me, but he was friendly and he gave me his card. And so I kept in touch with him over the next two years. And he, he came out to Pebble Beach again. This is now 93, and the magazine in, in January of 94 was going to launch something called Golf Plus, which is some of your listeners may remember. It was Right, sure. Yeah, kind of supplemental golf covers that went into the magazine, um, just only subscribers. And I think Mulvoy was realizing they might be able to use an intern, and I was quite persistent. And, you know, the Daily Bruin in those days, because I had matriculated UCLA, I just finished my sophomore year, the Daily Bruin was a fantastic student sure. newspaper i mean this is pre-internet we it was 120 pages a day wow yeah. wow and i didn't had, know that oh we had 30 pages a day of sports i mean because wow. you still like athletics from top to bottom you know back then we were winning rose bowls like all four years i was there we beat usc we won the national championship in basketball but from top to bottom whether it was you know water polo swimming volleyball um, UCLA was winning national championships constantly. I mean, it was just such high level sports. And so we covered all of it. So I had, I had a lot of really good clips to send mobile, even though I was only at that point, 20 years old. And, um, so that led to the, an internship and that's a really long story, but things got a little crazy. I wound up writing a cover story when I was still an intern that kind of secured my future at the magazine. So 
I went back and got my degree. And on the day I graduated, they made me a staff writer. And so, um, but yeah, it all, all roads lead to Pebble Beach in my golfing life. I mean, that that's where my, my writing career really took off. It's where I, I learned to love the game and certainly, you know, covered a million Crosby clam bakes and handful yeah. of us opens and the women's open. And it's, um, and I, I live in downtown Carmel. I mean, I can get my car and I could be on the first tee at Pebble in five or six minutes. You know, it's just, um, <laughs> non-tournament week. It's just a special place. And, um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's cool that it's part of my, my, my journey. A absolutely. So we should give you your due. I think the youngest staff writer in SI history, um, and, um, you know, great career there. Um, and then, um, as you say, 25 years, um, dozens of cover stories, what 70 plus majors. I mean, that was quite a ride at SI and it was, I started subscribing when I was 10 years old and I used to get all excited when it would come in the mail. It's, you know, it's a little sad, of course, to see what's happened to it and what's happened to magazines generally, but it was phenomenal. And, you know, Frank DeFord, Dan Jenkins, all those guys, and you were, you were part of that, which is awesome. So in 2000, just to kind of catch you to up to the present, um, you left in 2000, I think 18 to go to golf magazine. Um, and, um, you were there a few years and then, you know, now you're at the fire pit collective. Um, you've kind of had uh, a ringside seat sort of it's the dramatic changes that have been wrought on journalism and magazines generally by the internet. I'm just sort of curious. I mean, you've obviously made the transition beautifully because you're, you know, besides all the great books you write, you know, you've got the fire pit collective as a site that you contribute to, but I'm just sort of curious, you sit back and look back on it kind of your thoughts on the impact um, on journalism um, of the internet and the changes, the ginormous changes you've seen over your career. Yeah. You know, I, I caught the end of the glory years at sports illustrated. I mean, my 94 was when I did my internship. The internet didn't really start changing the industry until about the turn of the century. So there was, you know, I had a good run of six, seven, eight years where, I mean, they used to get $425,000 for a one page ad in sports illustrated wow. Wow. and blue chip companies lined up to, to happily pay that, you know, whether in the Detroit automakers, you name it. And then the emergence of the tech industry for a while, they were just advertising in SI. Um, and so it's, um, you know, some of the, some of the boondoggles I perpetuated are, remain legendary. Like I made myself a <laughs> correspondent of the European tour and spent a month just hanging out over there. Oh, in wow. France. wow. French open, Spanish open, um, Portuguese open and the Italian open, like, and just driving around and, um, you know, a lot of hijinks like that. I mean, it was literally an unlimited travel budget. No one cared. No one checked because the magazine was making $200 million a year profit. Right. It was just unbelievable. And um, of course, internet changed a lot of industries and, and journalism is near the top of the list, um, unfortunately. And it's it's not all bad. I mean, it certainly has been democratizing. There's It's a lot easier to have um, a voice now. You know, there used to be a lot of barriers to entry if you wanted to um, to write about, you know, golf, say. But, you know, a guy like Jeff Shackelford, you know, he was an early pioneer. He just right. started his own website and right. has done very well for himself. And, um, you know, that's continued whether it's no laying up or, you know, other outlets. Yeah. You know, you, 
the, the the startup costs for your own magazine were prohibitive, but to start right. your own website is not a big deal. And so right. it's brought more younger and diverse voices to the game. That's obviously a great thing. Um, but it's also, it's come at a cost. You know, when I remember in the, in the 90s and into the early 2000s, every big city newspaper had a golf writer right you know with dallas morning news or, or orlando sentinel um the phoenix papers of, of course the la times the new york times the washington right. post and these guys were good and yes. they were they were kind of hard-nosed reporters and uh, when the tour came to their town they blew it out and right they would they would travel 20 weeks a year and so there was a real robust golf beat I mean, 30, 40, 50 different reporters who were covering the tour every week. Right. Um, and now when you, you know, when you go into the press room at an event, it's just tumbleweed. I mean, two thirds of the people there are PGA tour digital media staffers. You wow. Know, and that's like, it's like state media. You, there's, <laughs> there's basically, you know, there's only, I mean, Doug Ferguson is the only yeah. guy who's really covering it regularly. Yep. You have, you know, you Bob Herrig of, of SI, SI right? a couple others, but there's just not that week in, week out golf beat. And so the tour is not going to um, write about anything juicy or controversial right. or interesting. You know, it falls on, on, on the real reporters and there's just not as many of them and they're not as in touch and they don't have the travel budgets and they don't, they haven't built the relationships with the players because they're not out there as much. So that hurts the fans, right? I mean, yes. Um, you know, the players have realized a long time ago, social, social media, they can control the message and it can be totally right. curated. And right um, now the tour amplifies that. And so there's a dearth of, of real storytelling and, and real, journalism um there's a lot of like fun kind of frothy things you could watch on your phone for 60 seconds and that's cool too i mean if it gets younger fans into it i, I i'm not against that at all but it needs to be balanced by some real reporting and some 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 real long-form journalism but unfortunately that's that's just disappearing yeah i totally agree if I, you know when we had your your buddy michael bamberger on a few months ago we talked about that in the I mean, probably the the greatest long form journalism I used to remember is Herb Wynn's articles in the New Yorker on the majors, but but you know SI usually you know absolutely had stuff that would go deep and and it really is it is sad not to have that. Um, so, yeah. but I think that that's a that's a good summary. I mean, there are pluses and minuses to be sure. Um, yeah. Let let me sort of uh, I want to sort of turn and focus a little bit on your um, two most recent books, um, which. Um, Probably I have I have right on the shelf behind me next to um, Michael's book, The Ball in the Air, which was also nice. fantastic um, yeah, and so uh, all great stuff. Um, and of course, the Phil book, you've gotten a lot of publicity on and, and you know, and of course, the whole thing with, um, you know, the quotes from Phil that happened, in, you know, that got got surfaced at uh, around time of Riviera a couple of years ago. But um, yeah, I, I I just I'm so fascinated um by Phil and and your book, which is fabulous, does a great job of I think very objectively just factually painting you know the picture for him. And let me maybe start it this way. You know, I look at him, and you know, of course, it's been Phil and Tiger for you know so long. Um, now, obviously, you know they've receded into the background a little bit in terms of playing, but 
you know, I look at Phil and Phil and Amy and the incredible acts of kindness and charity that are well-documented, you know, signing the autographs endlessly, yeah. charitable stuff, the large tips, um, you know, so much so that I think sometimes I saw him compared to Arnold Palmer and ja and Tiger was sort of Jack, you know, if you were going to sort of put analogies with, you know, Phil being a oh, man definitely. of the people, so to speak. But um, on the other hand, um, you know, he seems to be always want to be the smartest guy in the room and viewed that way. And, um, you know, the concept of the term that comes to my mind, because I've seen this used for other people, is kind of an all pro shit disturber. Um, he would always yes. want to sort of muck stuff up and, you know, complain to Fincham and now Monaghan about the media rights and everything. And and I always got the sense that he was a little more popular with the with the uh, public than he may have been with his fellow tour players. But um, anyways, I just look at all this. There's a lot of different contradictions in what I just said. And you you sort of know him better as well as anyone. How do you sort of sort out all these contradictions? They're really kind of conflicting currents in the river a little bit, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, I always say anything you've heard about Phil Mickelson is is probably true. I mean, it's he is just a very contradictory personality. He can be so gracious, so kind, generous. He can be petty and vindictive and bitchy and pretty much everything in between. And so, you know, all humans, we all have our our contradictions, but with him, the volumes just turn up to 100 and right. had this big, messy public life. And um, there's been so many acts of philanthropy and, and random acts of kindness and right. so many commendable things. He's been an incredibly gracious loser and, and a good sport throughout his whole career. But there's this dark side, too, and that there's really this war within Phil. And that's um, that's part of what makes him so fascinating, that that's true. I mean, that does make a person more interesting. The gambling stuff, um, which you know has always been chatted about, kind of um, got more surfaced with Billy Walters' book um, that came out. And um, uh, it, I mean, Billy, I mean, just reading that, and you you guys, of course, had some of the excerpts before it came out on the Fire Pit Collective, but. Yeah. Uh, about not keeping his commitment to speak out publicly in support of Billy. I mean, Billy really does seem to blame Phil for not doing that, right? I mean, he thinks that would have made a difference in him being convicted or not. Yeah, which is a little unfair to to Phil. I mean, the the government case was between Billy Walters and this guy Nichols, um, who is this com you know compulsive gambler who owed Billy a lot of money and. Uh, this guy happened to be, you know, associated with Dean Foods. And, you know, Phil is just kind of adjacent to that. But he was never part of the government's case. Now, if he had testified that he never received any inside information from Billy, which they both contend is is the facts of the matter, that would have helped Billy's case. But I'm not sure it would have gotten him off. Mm -hmm. But, you know, to to Billy, it was the ultimate betrayal that, that, that Phil didn't even try. And that... right. But no lawyer, and Phil has a bunch of them, and I've talked to many of them through the years, no lawyer would ever let their client put themselves in that kind of jeopardy unnecessarily because Phil had not been charged with a crime. Right. And he um, and so he was following his lawyer's advice. And you know, I understand why Billy Walters is upset at Phil Mickelson, but um uh, ultimately in the final analysis, it was the government against Billy Walters, not not Phil. So 
I think it's a little unfair. Not not that I'm excusing Phil's behavior because on a number of levels, it may have been not technically been illegal, but it was certainly shady. But, yeah. um, you know, it, it's an interesting nuance thing, but those are two big egos. And beyond the, the legalities, it was just a, a sense of personal betrayal because they were great friends and Billy almost considered Phil like a son. And right. they were men, you know, he was certainly a mentor. And so setting aside any of the, the facts, it was just that Phil wouldn't go to bat for him when he really needed it. And that's what, that's what was so hurtful to Billy Walters. Right. And I can, I can sort of see that. And I, I totally yeah. appreciate the point you're making. I mean, I can't, once you get on the stand, if, if, if that's what Phil didn't testify, you're on the stand and anything can happen. So that that's absolutely true. Um, you know, the other thing, I guess, you know, as I think about Phil that I sort of wanted to get your take on a little bit is, um, you know, I still remember just vividly, it's what now two and a half, oh, more than two and a half years ago, him winning at Kiowa. Um, and yeah. um, it was just, it was kind of surreal. I mean, it was, I don't know that anything's going to top in my mind, Jack in 86 at, at the Masters, but I mean, it, you know, had a bit of that feel to it that this was his, or Tiger in 2019, maybe at the Masters, but this kind of last hurrah, I mean, and he's playing with Brooks and the last round and the back and forth, the whole bunker shot, all the, you know, just the, and then that last hole where, which almost looked like the British Open in the old days where the crowd is just streaming through the 18th hole. And I mean, he was like on top of the world, seemingly at that point, winning that PGA oldest to win a major. And, you know, in, um, gosh, less than a year, it's kind of all blown up. Um, and, you know, you would have seen him at that point in time. Here's someone who's going to be, uh, you know, future Ryder Cup captain for sure. You know, you could envision if you advance the clock more, you know, him and Tiger taking the honorary starter roles at Augusta, you know, in the future. And it kind of all blew up. Um, I mean, <laughs> and, and, and I guess maybe just throw another thing on the table there. I mean, at the same time, Tiger, you know, who for most of his career, I mean, you know, unbelievable on the Mount Rushmore of golf, but, you know, very unapproachable. I don't think he had the, you know, connection with the public throughout most of his career, the way Phil did. Um, everyone respected him, but it was more feared. He seems to now the last few years have become this sort of um, maybe lovable is a little too strong, but it's this much more likable, you know, figure. It's almost like they've switched places, but I'm just sort of curious, kind of your reaction, how you see it um, in terms of the two of them. And, and, and if you ever see Phil kind of getting back anywhere to where he once was, or is, are those bridges all permanently burned? Yeah, it, it is. It is wild because objectively speaking, you know, Tiger's transgressions are so much more serious. I mean, he could have killed someone when he was, you know, right. during his DUI escapades and the public humiliation of his family and the um, sort of the the betrayal of of everything he was presenting himself to be publicly, publicly. And you know, in the final analysis, Phil was was doing some hard nosed business stuff in the shadows, and. I understand why some people are upset, but I would I would argue that the magnitude of what he did is not compared to to uh, what Tiger's done. But um, it is wild how Tiger's his beloved elder statesman and now Phil's a pariah. Um, 
I think that I think the pendulum is swinging back. I mean, to some degree, Phil's been uh, vindicated. You know, his two primary complaints, which he laid out to me in that famous phone call, and he's continued to to beat the drum, is that you know the players are not making enough money; they weren't getting enough of the revenue, and they didn't have did not have enough say in their governance. And as things have played out, he was certainly right about the governance. And um, once Liv arrived, magically the tour doubled purses and turned the spigot on. So it seems like he was correct on both accounts. Now it wasn't people's objections to to Phil. It's not what he said. It's how he went about it. And the element of sneakiness, you know, negotiating with the Saudis right, um, and the premier golf league for that matter, um, while still being a tour member and, and helping to recruit tour players for live. Like that's really, um, it's not what he said. It's how he did it. But uh, I think there's a general awareness that, you know, Phil was an agent of change and, it certainly helped the players on every tour. I mean, they should all be cutting a check to fill for the money they're making now um, as a thank you for his service. So um, we'll see. the The court of public opinion is is it has not it hasn't even begun its deliberations yet. There's a lot yeah. to play out. If 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 there's this reapproachment and the game can come back together, and um, you know, Phil could yet be a Ryder Cup captain and an honorary start at the Masters. Like this could just be yet another controversy in a career filled with them. But um, for now, he's on the outside looking in. Um, but if you know, it was only what t ten months ago at the Masters when he put that charge on the back nine, and the whole place went crazy. Yeah, I mean, for sure. And and everyone loves a winner, and. Um, despite what F. Scott Fitzgerald said, there are many second acts in public life in America. <laughs> winning cures a lot of a lot of ills. I mean, part of Tiger is of why he is where he is now is because he won the Masters in 2019. And that was such a feel-good moment. It washed away, you know, a decade of of controversy and and missteps and um, you know, kind of Phil did that at, at Kiowa, but now he has to do it again. But if Phil Mickelson wins the Masters, um, people will be going crazy on Sunday. Uh, oh, yeah. In Augusta and everywhere else. So um, he's still got some magic left in him. I I mean, if if we have this conversation in 10 or 20 years, I think Phil will be back in, in the good graces of the, the golf establishment. But uh, we'll see. I mean, it's it's fraught, and he's he's always prone to, you know, setting himself on fire. So he, <laughs> he, he could, he could blow up whatever goodwill he's, he's starting to accrue. Like, you know, that could vanish again with another controversy. So it's, it's always subject to, um, you know, it's, it's tenuous with him, I would say. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I am curious. So could you, you know, you know, the tour and the players so well, I mean, just when you talk about the pendulum swing, do you get that sense from the players in terms of their view of Phil that, you know, in quiet moments, they kind of acknowledged some of the points he made being right? Um, you kind of get that sense from talking to them? And it's not even in private. I mean, they've put it on Twitter. They've said it in interviews. I mean, the um, it's undeniable. There was, let's see, I, I got to get the math right. Setting aside the majors, which are not PG Tour events, there was only three or four that had purses more than $9 million. Yeah. Um, 
three years ago. And now $20 million is a routine purse on tour and plus another $100 million in bonus money. So um, he's more than doubled the salaries of the top players. And that's what these guys care about. And people say to me, how can Jay Monahan still have his job? Well, the number one role of the commissioner or the PGA Tour is to get the players paid. And he's doing right. that. That's how he still has a job. And um, <laughs> same same goes for, you know, how do these players feel about Phil? Well, he might rub them the wrong way. And he, um, you know, he's caused a little collateral damage. But man, it's nice to have, you know, a third house and a second Ferrari and your own jet. And um, they're not that mad at him. Yeah, that's fair. So let, let's get into live, which um, we're kind of touching, dancing around with, you know, talking about Phil. Um, and um, of course, that's your other book. Um, and, um, uh, you know, I, I, as I think I told you before, you know, being a James Bond fan, I love the title, you know, live and let die. Um, but uh, it's a it's a great book. And um, you know, as you and I were chatting a little bit beforehand, I know you said it was a gift from the content gods, and apparently it's a gift that keeps on giving because every day we get sort of new developments. But let's maybe just talk about kind of what happened and your thoughts on that, and then we'll get to the more recent developments um, really just over the past week. But to sort of step back a little bit, um, and you've kind of touched on this a little bit, you know, obviously this happens um uh, in 2022 then and we get that uh i actually i should start with this we get the framework agreement and i i put agreement in air quotes because it's really not much of an agreement it's more of an agreement to stop litigation and combined with a term aspirational term sheet but you're finishing your book i always i, I thought this was an interesting story the timing of this you finished your book i think on june 5th or, or something there about or you thought you were done and then this announcement comes out on june six and you're sitting here on the west coast and getting you know a bunch of crazy email alerts at probably a very early hour right yeah 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 it was wild it was supposed to, the deadline was always gonna be june 1st on the manuscript and then my editor was out of town or whatever he said just take till the fifth which was the monday he said great i was happy to have the extra days because it was an insane deadline and yeah i stayed up really late and i um and I made the fatal, you know, fatal mistake of putting on Twitter like uh, a little thing. Oh, the book's done. I've never been so happy in my life. Kind of a tweet. And I went to bed, <laughs> and yeah, I woke up and the world was on fire. So um, it was it was hilarious timing, but all to the good because you know if the framework agreement had come down when the book was already printed, I would have been devastated. Which is yes, yes, hole in the story, and. Simon Schuster, to its credit, let me take it down to the wire. And so I spent another six weeks reporting and, and wrote another 15,000 words to really bring it up to the minute. And, you know, some people said, well, you can't you can't put it out. We don't know how the story ends, but we kind of did. You know, either the deal was going to get consummated or it wasn't, or there'd be this middle ground with, you know, private equity money. And I laid out all three scenarios right. in the last you did. chapter. You kind did. of peering into the crystal ball. So, um, you know, certainly there'll be a paperback and I'll write a new chapter for that that will cover what everything is happening right now and what's going to happen in the next few months um, as we know whether the PIF is going to stay in the deal or not. And if Liv is going to become, you know, kind of a allied circuit to the PGA Tour or a bitter enemy, um, we're going to find out here shortly. But uh, yeah, it was... It was unbelievable timing, and even I have to laugh at you know how the golf gods did me dirty on that one. 
For sure. Um, so before we kind of get to kind of what we've seen the last week, just to kind of look at what's transpired over, um, you know, the last, I guess, nearly two years in the PGA Tour's response. And there's there's so many different aspects to this. Um, you know, I, you know, from this, I, and I just want to touch on a few of them with you because um, we could spend all day on this, but just a couple of things, you know, one of the things people have, you know, commented on, right, is you're dealing with, um, uh, let's call it an adversary from at least a tourist point of view, that's got $700 billion. And, you know, MBS, you know, is very focused on, you know, sports and tourism, and this kind of checks both boxes. And it certainly, you can see how this helps the Saudis reputationally, but it's not like it's um, hitting the ball out of the park in terms of revenue. Um, you know, the the ratings are like nil. Um, and I guess I'm curious because you've thought about this and written about it. I, I get if you want to say, well, they're doing this to sort of help them reputationally. That I get. Um, the financial ROI seems a little more elusive to me. I mean, do you think from your study of this, that they're looking for not just the reputational ROI, if we could use that term, but a financial one as well, because the financial one seems like it's not, um, I don't, it's hard to see it on the near-term horizon. Near-term, I agree. I mean, Liv is always, people, the, the money guys, or I just know, the brains that live, if we can use that term loosely, have always talked about a 10-year time horizon. Um so they've, you know, they're in year three. Um, and the key has always been these franchises and and selling the franchises. It's not that far-fetched. I mean, I was talking to Joe Ogilvy, former tour player, who's now mm -hmm. a very, um, very successful money guy. And he's talked about as a future PGA Tour commissioner. And I just bumped into Pebble Beach and we were talking about all this. And, you know, he said you, the valuations in sports don't are not like in any, anything else. He's like, it trades like art, you know, sports trades like art was his quote. And, you know, of course, MBS is the guy who paid $500 million for a Da Vinci painting. Um, <laughs> and in today's dollars, that was what, $20 of, of canvas and maybe $20 worth of paint. You know, that's all we're you could recreate that painting for 50 bucks with the raw materials, but it sold for 500 million. Like um, there's a premium and the, because of its provenance and, and because of its uniqueness and sports is a little similar. I mean um, you look at what, what franchises in the major sports are selling for. So if you could get um, you know, if live can get $500 million for a franchise uh, even even if they got 300 million per franchise, they sell those. That's three and a half billion dollars. They've more than gotten their money back. And there's a lot of rich dudes who want to buy their way into professional sports, and they don't have the money or the access to buy the Dallas Cowboys. Right. You know, Cowboys will sell for 10 billion. Uh, right. You could get a live franchise for 300 million dollars. You own something. You get to party on the yacht with Dustin and Paulina. You get to play in every pro am and go to every party. If you if you have if you have that kind of money to burn and you love golf, I mean, it might be kind of fun. So, and um, and then you have something, you know, when you talk about the super rich, everyone has a plane, everyone has the houses, everyone has this right. that. But there, sports is is rarefied air. There's very few of those things to go around. So, um, 
you know, they may yet be able to sell the franchises and get their money back. And, um, but you know, day to day, um, ROI is, is certainly lacking. I mean, the teams are starting. I just got a, an email that the Majestics uh, have a new corporate sponsor, and that that the Crushers their their new team apparel deals with Stitch Golf, which is a really cool brand. And yeah, so, it is a cool brand. Um, you know, the the deals are starting to happen. Obviously, by design, Jay Monahan and the tour did such a good job villainizing Live that no corporate entities would touch it for a while, but. Now that they're all theoretically friends, you know, the walls have started to come down and there is a path for Liv to make some money that way. Uh, it's certainly, they do a great job with the, the in-person experience. Like this event in Vegas this week during Super Bowl week is going to be, a, you know, they've got all the music acts, they've got all the celebrities, like it's going to be very successful and it's going to draw big crowds and it's going to be great energy on social media and you know, the Australia event last year was like that, you know, Singapore right. was it. Right. So they started to crack the code um, on the on the corporate side and, and as an in-person experience. But obviously the real money is in TV and they have not capitalized on that at all. Right. Uh, whether they can, you know, I think they'd be better served just to pull up stakes in the U.S. market and just play every event overseas and then... You cut a deal with Sky Sports. You cut a deal with whatever the Korean version of ESPN is, um, and just have fourteen events, international markets. Get it, get a TV deal on each of those markets. Find whatever local billionaire in that market who wants to buy a franchise, and I think then it could be successful. Trying to play in the, in the U.S. market, I think, is a mistake. Um, and the most of the tournaments they've had in the U.S. have been duds, and so you already saw that. You know. This year's schedule, they have eight international events out of 14. I think that number is going to continue to rise. And I think that's actually a pro, a path to profitability. But um, as long as they're trying trying to have a bunch of tournaments in the U.S., I think they're going to struggle. That's a really good point. I could totally see that. I mean, you know, there are certain countries, certainly Japan, Korea come to mind where golf is just so huge. And I could see that. Um, getting a lot of traction with with events in places like that that makes a lot of sense to me, um, and and I take your point about the franchises. I mean, there's no question that for rich folks, the the you know major league sports franchises are the ultimate toys, the ultimate clubs. Um, being in that room of 32 in the NFL is like the zenith for a lot of these guys, and um, it doesn't have to be the 10 billion for the Cowboys. If you're right, you know, if it's, if even 500 million, that would start to get their money back. Uh, you know, one of the things that's um, been an ongoing aspect of this whole live saga is the OWGR points. Um, and that came down, I think in the fall and Peter Dawson, when you read the rationale, the state, at least the stated rationale, it seemed to focus more on the lack of, um, the kind of rigorous qualification relegation type concepts that they like to see. It seemed to focus more on that in terms of why they decided not to give it to them rather than the 54 holes and no cuts. So, I mean, at least it seemed to me, I'm curious your thoughts that Liv could structurally address some of that um, and maybe make another run for OWGR points. I mean, do you see that happening? Yeah. I mean, it, Yes, and they, they, 
there has been some turnover on live. I mean, it's smaller numbers, but four, four guys played their way onto the tour this, this year, um, through their Q school and through the, uh, international series order of merit, you know, that was when there was 48 spots. Now there's 52. So, you know, it was roughly 10%. Um, that's on par with how the turnover on the PGA tour, you know, with, they have 150 members and the number of guys who get cards at Q school and, um, through the web is a little bit higher, but, you know, live has to do a better job of that. That I, I see both sides of this, you know, to me, the, the world ranking has become irrelevant. Like I, I saw some stat, like, you know, Ludwig Ebert is the, the third fastest guy ever to reach number 11 in the world ranking, but <laughs> it's like, whatever, there's, there's so many players missing out of the world ranking. Now I don't even look at it. I mean, data golf is the ranking that matters. And I was Rory Mac. He, he, Roy McElroy mentioned that the other day. That that's what he looks at. I mean, the, the players know that the people who follow this closely don't even look at the world ranking anymore because it's just it makes no sense when you're missing twenty of the best players in the world or whatever the number. You can do you see you the majors then switching that out and no longer using that because isn't that kind of the main reason why people focus on that? Yeah, it, it, the problem is though the majors have they're the ones who who run the world ranking. Right, now. that's true. And so <laughs> so they're conflicted. But, you know, Joaquin Neiman's going to be an interesting test case um, this year's majors because, you know, Augusta National is invitational. They can do whatever they want. Yeah. And so is the PGA Championship, which people don't realize that yeah. they, um, they have a committee. Like last year, they invited Paul Casey. He wasn't otherwise exempt, you know, live, live player. Um, I mean, Neiman was a top 20. He was 19 in the world ranking when he went to live. And he just won the Australian Open. It's one of the great championships in, the, yeah. in, in golf. Um, he just won a live event, you know, where John Rahm was on the leaderboard. And that's significant because we know how good John Rahm is. And if you beat him any given week, that's a big deal. Um, yeah. So I think the PGA will invite Neiman. The question is, will the Masters, you know, they're such staunch traditionalists. Um, but they also, they've always wanted international... Right. audiences, international players. And Neiman is without a doubt the best player from an entire continent um, and in South America. And so are they going to, and the, the Masters is diminished without him. I mean, he's one of the 20 best players in the world. I don't think there's any question about that. And, um, and so will the Masters cut off, you know, their nose despite their face or whatever that expression is because yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the Masters is diminished without Joaquin Neiman. It's as simple as that. And you're you're missing out on a lot of fans. I mean, they they, they host this Latin American amateur right. championship That's to try right. and stimulate interest in on this continent. And they're not going to take its biggest star and its best player. It, it's insane. So that's going to be really fascinating to see what what the Masters does. And you can extend that to Taylor Gooch. He doesn't have quite the same resume, but he was 35th in the world when he went to live, and he's won a bunch of live events. When he's made cameos on the European tour, he's done very well. You know, I almost won at Wentworth. Um, so right. um there's he's certainly one of the 50 best players in the world. Um and um I don't know. I, I'll be curious. Does the Masters really want to have the best players there? They say they do. Um, so we're gonna find out. I think the PGA will probably give Gooch and Neiman exemptions. Um, Neiman's into the British Open by virtue of that that Aussie Open win, right? So um, it's going to be a fascinating test case. Those are the two guys. That it's really it, it really matters. You know the um, 
the the big stars on live are all exempt from things they've done in the past um right, at least for right. this year um but like you know sergio went to us open qualifying last year you know it's he's still he's still a formidable player um it, he's going to start missing majors here so it's um it's an interesting case i mean i think the owgr is it's past its sell by date but because the majors are on the governing board they're going to cling to it longer than they should right now that's that's a great point you know you just thinking of the masters and thinking we talked you mentioned in passing phil's amazing run last year um and of course brooks you know was right in it with john and and then of course brooks wins the pga one thing I, and i was surprised I, one thing i had sort of wondered about when these guys all went to live um is how sharp would they be when they showed up at the majors because i always you know was under the impression you know the pga tour is deep and and you know that you know playing on the pga tour gets you tournament major ready um and uh, at least for the masters that's that thesis seemed to have gotten blown up a little bit by how well brooks and and phil did and um uh, i'm just sort of curious if you kind of your thoughts on that, or is that kind of, uh, are these guys demonstrating that, um, you know, they're, they're just, a, you know, such talents that, you know, playing on live versus playing PJ tour, they still can get their games ready for the majors. Well, yeah. And Patrick Reed was top four at Augusta. Right. Obviously. Another one. Right. Exactly. Brooks won the PJ championship and Cam Smith was, was top 10 there. Um, so, you know, these guys know how to prepare and you see, <laughs> you see them take two or three months off and then they show up in Kapalua and somebody shoots 35 under. Like, <laughs> right. um, That's true. <laughs> I think the tournament reps can be a little overrated. I think that um, the difference between the PJ tour and live is overrated. I mean, it's still, I've been, I've, you know, unlike most people in the media, I've gone to a lot of live events. Yeah. Oh, you were at I've the very to... first, very first one. And you've gone to a few, yeah. right? Exactly. Yeah. I've been to a half dozen of them at least since then. And, you know, guys are hitting balls till sunset and they're on the, they're on, I've never seen Phil spend as much time on the practice screen as he has in the last couple of years. Like they're still chasing it because there's $25 million a week up for grabs. Right. Like, you know, and the notion, the notion that, oh, you sign, you know, the, the players who got big signing bonuses that then they're going to stop caring. I mean, it, it doesn't track in, in the context of team sports because right. the best players in football, basketball, and baseball, make the most money. But, you know, Steph Curry's making $60 million from the Warriors. It doesn't seem like he's not trying any harder than he, he always has. Right. You know, when Michael Jordan was making $35 million and no one else was making more than 10 he was still trying hard. Like, I think if 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 you're a competitor and you want to win, um, I don't think that really changes. And um, in some ways, it's freed some of these guys up because – there on the tour there was this pressure to play a lot of events to main you know maintain your status in the FedEx right. Cup race um and it's there's 48 tournaments like you feel like okay I got to play at least you know 22 of them it just what there it's just sort of keeping up with with the Joneses a little bit and um so you see how how well Brooks played in the majors like he's talked a lot about having rest and recovery time and you know, as these guys, you know, he's in, he's had surgeries. These guys right. are getting older. Like I think getting off the, the week to week grind is, is helping them be fresh in the majors. So, um, 
we still need a little more sample size. It'll be interesting, you know, this year when we get to the end of, of the British Open to look back and, and see, um, you know, at that point we'll have, I guess, 10 majors in the live era and we can, we right. can sort of see how these guys have done with, with a little more, a few more data points. But uh, early returns suggest that going to live is not going to preclude you from winning major championships. I mean, yeah. that, that's pretty obvious. That's for sure. Um, let me turn to sort of the tour's response to some of this, um, both last year and 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 some of the more recent stuff, and and get your thoughts. I mean, the um, I guess the famous meeting was um, Tiger, um, who, and that's a story in itself, I suppose. The way he's become this not not only just elder statements, but his leading role, the governance role, and everything. But the Delaware meeting in summer of 2022 that he um was one of the driving forces behind when they were up um <clears throat> i guess at caves valley or somewhere where they were you know playing for the tour championship anyways they get together in a room and kind of decide you know we need to play together the stars need to play together more regularly um and um and that's kind of what we've seen right with this they were designated events. Now I guess they're called signature events um, where, you know, we've going to have um, mandated, although not everyone's gone to everyone, but mandated where the, you know, the top players um, are playing uh, their, their smaller field. Some of these are no cuts um, and uh, significantly higher purses um, as you alluded to. Um, and um and I mean, if I'm looking back at like what what's the PGA Tour done? That's kind of the main thing that I see. And then the PIP money, um, you know, just sort of all funneling more money to the stars. Um, I mean, what any thoughts on that as sort of a response from the, Jay? I mean, I, I I can see the logic on it, but I'm sort of curious, kind of how you look at it. Yeah, I mean, what Liv got right is that every player plays in every tournament. And so if if you go to the event in Vegas this week, you know you're going to get Dustin and Brooks and Cam Smith and John Rahm and Bubba Watson and, you know, whoever your favorite player is going to be there. That's always been a huge flaw in the tour's model. The sponsors don't know who's going to show up. The fans don't know who's going to show up. Um, and the elevated events has, have mostly solved that. Of course, the tour backed off this mechanism where they were compulsory and now they're optional but still guys are, are showing up so um that that's been an upgrade to the tour schedule i mean you know pebbles is my hometown event like it was cool to have scotty scheffler and roy mcelroy and justin thomas and you know wyndham clark and guys who usually don't play it so that was great for local golf fans it was a much better tv product on saturday anyway and um so um yeah, I mean the tour it's been reactive but they have made some some of the right moves. Um it's still there's still too much golf. The schedule's too bloated. I mean they'd be better off losing a dozen events and consolidating the product. It you know, Rory's only going to play 20 events. They still have another two dozen at least right. that he's not going to show up for. It just it just hurts the product. Um, and now, especially when they've lost most of their personalities and many right. of their best players and, and biggest stars, like there's just too much golf on the schedule and, and not enough players that people care about. Do you see that happening? Them cutting back there's And there's always this sort of tension, I guess, between the stars. Um, you know, if you're, if you're in Jay Monahan's seat, you know, 
um, you've got this huge tour, um, and and I go back to the days of rabbits and Monday qualifying before Gary McCord convinced everyone to have this all exempt tour where it was a smaller number of players. Um, but you've got this big number of players and many of whom aren't, you know, they're exempt, but they don't qualify for these um, signature events. And, and so they fill out the fields in these other events. I mean, do you see the tour, you know, cause I agree with you. I think there is too much golf. I mean, from a fan standpoint, do you see the tour cutting back on that? Um, I could just imagine the howls from some of the other folks uh, on the tour, yeah. the lesser players, but curious what you think. Well, if, if they had not taken this private equity money, it would have happened in a very Darwinian nature because a lot of right because they couldn't leaving. afford right they're leaving right. <laughs> there there would have just been attrition because of the economics of it now that they have this large s from um you know private equity they'll keep those events going because you know the playing opportunities for the tours middle class and um you know they would be bad form to start to start shuttering events when they're taking all this money so they'll that was one of the reasons to do it is the tours was an economic model. that didn't make any sense. Um, right now they've kind of solved that. Um, so yeah, I, I think that, I think that, you know, the, um, the Texas opens and some of these lesser tournaments are safe now, but they, they were going to start disappearing without this outside investment. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So let's talk about kind of turn to that more present day, what's happened in the last week. Um, SSG's investment. Um, I don't know that I fully understand this. I bet you understand it better than I do. But, you know, there's this sort of new co, uh, you know, new taxable parent entity called PGA Tour Enterprises, that um, that's the top entity into which the money's flowing in. So SSG is investing, I guess, a billion five with some pledge of it being up to three billion I'm not sure what the contingencies are for the additional money, but at least a billion five initially. Um, this PGA Tour Enterprises, uh, new parent entities, houses all of the tour's commercial interests. The tour, um, and I guess also the DP World Tour, I shouldn't forget that, their commercial interests as well. And then the tour itself is going to continue to operate as it always has as a nonprofit organization, 501c6. Um, I don't know if that if the i guess the parent maybe is going to own the tour and the tour is going to stay as a separate subsidiary non-taxable non-profit entity i mean it, they don't really spell it out that clearly and then um they're going to give equity grants and we can talk about that which just broke yesterday in terms of the details on that but i guess where i sort of start alan and here's your views that the thing that um i stopped a little in my tracks last week when i saw this is the billion and a half is what was in you know, the, the memo, I guess, or what got published, but, you know, several outlets reported um, that the valuation, which is the interesting point, um, overall is $12 billion, um, for this entity. And I just, I kind of looked at it, it's like, how is this worth $12 billion? Um, you know, the, the, the biggest source of revenue is the TV deals, um, they're locked through 2030, I think. Um, so those aren't changing tomorrow. The, the SSG guys are not, they're smart guys. Um, I would assume, you know, I can understand where the, why the tour needs the money. You kind of alluded to it that, you know, these purses are just gigantic and they've been squeezing the sponsors. So I, I'm, I've no doubt that the tour can put the money to use plugging some of these holes. 
But from a from a um, SSG standpoint um, and potentially a PIF standpoint, if they come in, how's this worth twelve billion dollars? Well, it's not. But it was like we were talking about earlier, it's it's not a traditional investment. Um, you know, these private equity guys love golf. They would pay any amount of money to have Tiger come and, and shake their hand on the range at Medalists, and so yeah. they're they're buying access, they're buying experience. Um, they just want to own something shiny. Um, it, the numbers don't add up. Yeah, uh, but I again, don't see it. they don't they don't add up in the art world either. Like, um, so it you can't look at it. There's a lot easier ways to make money than investing in some shadowy new corporation who's potentially going to be competing against the public investment fund, right? right. Like. This is not a good investment from a traditional sense. Like you'd be better putting it into the stock market or buying real estate in Carmel or about a hundred other things. You might as well buy crypto, right? But um, <laughs> this is a chance to own something. And like we were saying before, you know, these rich guys want to own something and in sports. So um, this notion that, that, and Max Home and others have said it publicly, oh, well, these guys are here to make money. So it's going to be lean, mean, and, and everything's going to make sense because it has to, because they're these, these, these really smart sharks. <laughs> it's like, nah, they just want to, they just want to play in the pro-ams and they want to, they want to go to the parties and they want to get invited to the nice dinners at master's week. Like there's, it's not a great investment, but it's a fun one. And, um, but certainly if you look at the private equity handbook, like the first thing to do is layoffs, right? And you see yes. that they come and they buy a newspaper. You think some people are nervous in Northern Florida at the moment? They should be. <laughs> I mean, there's over, there's I think 32 guys who make over a million dollars at the PGA Tour headquarters. Oh, wow. I did. Really? Wow. They have an army of overpaid vice presidents. Like there's going to be some attrition there. Um, there has to be, you know, the senior tour loses $25 million a year. They might just oh. shut, you know, if they were wow. smart, they would just shutter the senior tour. The only thing that will keep the senior tour going is the possibility that Tiger will want to play it. Right. Um, right. But if, if Tiger said tomorrow, you know what, my leg hurts too much. I'm retiring from golf. I'm not going to play the senior tour. Then that they would be in danger. You know, it takes, it loses money and it takes a lot of, a lot of energy to run. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of ways to trim the fat and some of that's going to happen. And the, the other thing is you got to grow the revenue and the best way to do that is through TV. But unfortunately the, the media rights deals are locked in through 2030. So if you're playing the long game, you know, you create a much better product then you can really cash in with the new TV deals, but that's still years and years away. I mean, I think what you're going to see is the PJ tour go all in on sports betting in a way that we can't even fathom. That's where the money is. And, you know, it's going to become the DraftKings Pro-Am at Pebble Beach, and it's going to be the FanDuel Open at Riviera. And I think there's going to be, you're going to be able to go to tournaments and bet in real time. And I think there's going to be special streaming services for bettors that have access to real-time stats. And because that's when... What Monahan was trying to do and what failed was just to squeeze a few more million dollars out of every corporate sponsor. Right. Like it's already a tough sell if you're a CEO of a publicly traded company to spend twelve or fifteen million dollars on a golf tournament. Right. Now these elevated events, they want twenty-five or thirty. Right. That's just not gonna work. So 
I just don't know where the money can come from unless you create entirely new revenue streams. And to me, the most obvious one is, is sports betting. I mean, golf, it's four days a week from dawn to dusk. There's incredible amounts of data that they already have access to. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's tailor made for all those degenerate gamblers out there. And we know they're legion. So um, I think, I think the tours that's that to me is the most obvious way to do it. Um, a great point. Yeah. You know, maybe they'll start, maybe there'll be a PJ tour cannabis brand and they'll, they'll start selling that. I mean, where, where's the money in society? It's sports, it's, it's marijuana, it's alcohol, you know, it's all the vices. That's the easy right, money. The vices, right. <laughs> um, so I don't know. I, I don't know how else they do it because the fans are so disenchanted. Like you can make, you can try to make every tournament. I mean, there's already like PGA tour live and streaming services you have to subscribe to. They're terrible. They, they are. I agree. <laughs> they start charging more. There'll be, there'll be major revolts. If they blow that system up and they made it incredible and you could watch like at the masters, every hole, every player, every shot. And they did, but that would take so much investment. And I think to, you know, if they, they want to, I think and try and charge fans a lot of money for that. They're gonna there's gonna be this rebellion because the fans have been through a lot the last few years. And yes, the guy in the couch is like, Why are you tripling my streaming service just so you can get more money to um, you know, Cheston Hadley? Like that's that's gonna be a tough sell. So yeah, I think they're gonna have to bring the money from the outside. And I gambling to me is the most obvious, but maybe there's other things afoot. I don't know. I, um so yeah, it in the short term, they're going to reduce costs. They're going to try and increase revenue. Uh, they're going to try and improve the product. And then they're just going to hope that they can bring the stars back into the fold from live through attrition or whatever. And, and then they can cash in with a big TV deal, you know, in, in six years. But it doesn't make sense as a, a traditional investment. You have to look at it differently. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, um, and just, you know, I just the thing that came out yesterday um, is um, was interesting that four groups of equity, 930 million, you know, with and it was interesting. The first press release a week ago said talked about, well, all 200 or I think it was something like 200 players will have access to equity. But when you look at what came out yesterday, it's kind of what I would have expected. 750 of the 930 goes to the top 36, however that's going to be determined. Um, so it's very top-end weighted, which sort of makes sense. I guess the only other thing that's, the one thing that surprised me a little bit is when they go down through the tiers, that last tier of 75 million, it almost seems like it's going to founders. They didn't name anybody, but it talked about people who were influential in the finding of the uh, founding of the tour. And I mean, at least some of the articles you know, mentioned Nicholas and stuff. I mean, it would be, I don't know, wild to me. I would have never, never struck me that uh, they'd be given money to folks like, given equity, I should say, to folks like that. But that, um, it was kind of surprising. I don't know if you had a reaction to that. I was, I didn't expect that. Well, yeah, I wrote this earlier in the week. I did this like weekly reader mailbag column called Ask Alan. And um, yes, it's great. Terrible name. <laughs> but some, someone asked me about it. And I said they should give like every player who's still alive who played on the PGA tour, give them like a thousand dollars per start that they made. Like all these old timers who helped build this thing because it's just it's like the lucky sperm club. Like these guys who are on tour right now are gonna collect this. But um, you know, the 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 players who who brought the tour this far they they've played a role and 
And so I think, I think it's cool. They're going to acknowledge some of them. I mean, you know, it'd be, it'd be, it's a fun thought exercise. What, if you're going to, Greg Norman was the biggest star for a long time. <laughs> right. He, he was number one ranking for so he's, long. He should right? be getting a, a nice chunk of equity. We'll, we'll see how much Greg actually gets. Yeah. But, I wouldn't hold you know, our breath give, for that. If they give Nick Price, you know, a million shares of equity, they better give Greg 2 million, but it's, we all know it's not going to work that That's way. That's not going to happen. That'll be fun. That, funny. that is an interesting thought. Exercise. Hey, I'll get you out of here on this. It's not a small point, but sort of kind of the uh, a last one is kind of, now that we've sort of seen the hand that the PJ Tour has at least played so far, um, you know, what I think everyone's wondering is what's going to happen with Liv and with Piff? I mean, <clears throat> you know, when this framework agreement got announced, the thinking was, well, we'll form a new co and Piff will invest in it. And now we've got private and you, you know, as you noted, pointed out the different alternatives in the last chapter. Now we've got private equity coming in and they say, well, you know, PIF could still come in, and they could, um, but they're not going to be a controlling interest, that's for sure. Um, and um, I guess, you know, I'm curious how you see PIF if, if coming in or not. I mean, things seem frosty now. Uh, you know, they, they recruited ROM. Um, that was a big domino to fall. Um, you know, yeah. they're going full steam ahead with LIV. Um, I'm sort of, maybe there's two parts to this kind of how you see, or if you see PIF, you know, becoming part of this and sort of relatedly, if you see the players being that have gone to, um, live being, um, some pathway for them to come back and participate in the PGA tour. I know that's a lot, but I mean, those are kind of the yeah. things I'm thinking, wondering about and curious what you think. Well it's the same question as it's been for a couple of years now that defines golf. Like what does Yasir want? You know, he's, that's what it really comes down to. He's, he has to make a decision. Does he, does it, does it advance the, 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 the wants and needs of its, of his bosses or his boss singular MBS <laughs> and the Saudi regime to, um, to consummate this deal. And the, 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 Yashir has to decide, like, if he comes in as another investor, the, the Saudis now have a seat at the table with the PGA Tour, which they've always wanted. Right. They're now co-partners with all these these other investors, um, and their their fortunes and their their futures are linked, and that has a lot of value to the public investment fund right. and to to the Saudi ruling class. But uh, at the same time, the PIF never takes a minority interest. Like it wants a dominant role. Right. Right. And on some level, um, you know, how it becomes about face, you know, how, how, how does Yasir save face? Like if he walks away and says, you know, you didn't break, you didn't break up with me. I broke up with you. Like, does that, is that have more value to him? Um, <laughs> or does, does, does it look like, would it be, would it be, catastrophic it looks like he got aced out of a deal and he got outmaneuvered um so i don't know he's he has to decide um the rom signing was a signal like okay if you squeeze us out if this deal falls apart we're going to come in really heavy and uh, and they will it will make next off season wild if if this frame agreement falls apart and live in the tour competing again every golfer is in play um, and the numbers are going to start flying around because, um, again, whatever Rom 
if Ron costs three hundred million dollars, if they can if they can sell a live franchise to the richest man in Spain for um, you know five hundred million, they get the money back and and they've gotten to enjoy his services for four years. So, I think um, I think it's a huge decision for both the tour and and for the Saudis and. It's a coin flip right now. I mean, I, everything I've heard is that it's fallen apart and it just hasn't been announced yet, but that could change very quickly um, based on what Yasir wants. So I don't know. It's The tour doesn't need the money at this point, but the risk is having a fierce competitor. Right. Um, and to your question about how do they, what is the what is the road back? I mean, to me, it's always been a very simple solution. Just say that live players can take sponsors exemptions as non-members. So they get seven per year. They're not eligible for the FedEx Cup. They're not eligible for the retirement plan vesting. We certainly wouldn't be eligible for the equity, but that would help these tournaments greatly. You know, it dimin it diminishes Pebble Beach if they can't have Phil Mickelson, a five-time champion. Right. In the field. Right. Uh, it hurts the Phoenix Open if John Rahm, a local resident, doesn't play. Uh, you know, it hurts a lot of tournaments not to have Dustin at, where he's, he's won there multiple times. Um, you know, Cam Smith, who I think is the most fun player to watch in golf, like for him not to play the Florida events when he lives in Florida, like um, that would be a very easy way to begin the process. And um, to me, there's no downside for the tour. They would, they would get, they'd get a boost from the TV ratings the sponsors exemptions already are accounted for in the field side. So it's not like they're, they're acing out right. any, anybody else. And, you know, it, you know, it was like Kevin Stadler got in it. I think he got a sponsor's exemption of Phoenix. Like, you know, that guy's had many chances to, to keep his card on the PGA tour. I don't think anyone's gonna be too sour if John Rom takes that spot instead. Right. He's earned it. So, um, I don't know. It's, um, I, that that's already provided for. That's already a mechanism. It's just the tour has to put the guns down and and you know no longer ban these players. But um, likewise, I think it would be cool if Liv set aside in every in every event a, a, a four person team from the PGA Tour, and the tour could figure out how they want to do that. But let these guys come in. That would add a lot of friction and a lot of energy to it, and. Um, you know, if you had a team of, of Rory and JT and Jordan Spieth, um, like that would be great for the golf world. It'd be great for live golf. The tour might be a little sour about it, but the players would enjoy it. So, and the players are running the show. So I don't know. There's there's ways to do it if there's that collective will. Um, it's certainly not good for golf that there's barely enough stars to go around for one tour. Right. That's and right. And split them up across two is, is not a good thing. So do you, do you think that's a, it, yeah, this, this, this that's a very intriguing idea about sponsors exemptions. I mean, I'm just, you've seen a lot of chatter the last few days, Rory seemingly very different than he was a few months ago wanting this. And, but you've seen JT, Jordan, Scotty, all three in different ways, sort of say, more or less there have to be consequences for these guys. They can't just, you know, waltz back in, but I'm just thinking through what you said and maybe the fact that they wouldn't be participating in the equity, they wouldn't be participating in all these other things. Maybe that's, I'm, I'm curious if, if those are sufficient consequences for those folks that they'd be amenable to the approach you're taking. 
Yeah, I mean, what 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 does JT want? He wants Dustin Johnson to pay a ten million dollar fine. It's never going to happen, right? Like, you know, those guys are too prideful, and they left the PGA Tour partly because they they were bitter at the lack of say in the governance and right. the not having any control of their destiny and, and how the tour was shaped, like. And now it's only gotten more bitter. Like they're not they're not going to pay a fine. So what do they want right. them to do? Right. Like either. Do you want do you want the best players in the world to play on the PGA Tour or not? And if they erect a lot of barriers, I mean, these guys are mostly happy on live and they're getting paid. So, um, the at this point, the the PGA Tour needs those guys more than the other way around. Yes, so, I agree. Um, with you. I think, and Rory knows that. And you know, Rory's a legacy guy. Like, let's say he wins ten tour events this year and is Player of the Year. Everyone's gonna be like, yeah, major asterisks. Like, right. Um, it's not the tour it used to be. Um, and and he said that, you know, he said that. He said exactly of, that. I was going to say. Like, he was if I, if I'm holding exactly the trophy that. at the end, I want to know I beat right. all the best players and we don't have all right. the best players anymore. So um, I think I think it's short-sighted by, and a little petulant from, you know, the Justin Thomases. Like um, this, they made a business decision. Um, if you want ever want these guys to play again, you're gonna have to just accept that the world has changed a little bit. If, if they have, if they have all these, all these penalties and, and all this rigmarole, they're just never gonna see these guys on tour again, and that that would be a shame. I agree. Uh, hey, Alan, this is you've been very generous with your time. This has been great talking to you about all of this. Um, and you know, as I sort of said at the beginning it's like every day this drama seems to have a new chapter to it so um we will um look forward and uh what the masters does with joaquin and some of these other things in the next coming months but thank you so much really appreciated the conversation yeah it's good stuff larry thanks for having me i appreciate your time my pleasure take care